Welcome to your personal branding podcast with Bernard Kelvin Clive, your number one career and business podcast in Ghana, bringing you expert interviews and insights into personal branding, personal development, and publishing. Now, here's your host, Bernard Kelvin Clive. Welcome to another edition of your personal branding podcast show. I'm your host, Bernard Kelvin Clive. And in this particular episode, let's look at something to do with branding wealth creation. Have you ever heard of people with big brand names but have very little to do in their pocket or at the end of the month? What do you think about that? Today's expert, I have Faisa Rice as the special guest, the author of Wealth Actually, with us today to share his expertise on creating wealth and building a brand in the future in the area of the finance industry. Faisa Rice, welcome to the Personal Branding Podcast Show. Bernard, thanks for having me on. This is a real treat. It's a pleasure I treasure. Terrific. Well, my, my job is to help maintain treasures, so hopefully we're, we're aligned. <laughs> <laughs> sure, let, let, let's look at treasures and money, wealth creation. Money is great. It's good to have money. You, the author of the book, Wealth Actually. And let's begin. Let's, let's delve a little bit deeper into the background. How do you get started into wealth management and into becoming an author of Wealth Actually? Sure. Uh, so I uh, am a lawyer by background. I uh, had worked in politics beforehand and didn't want to uh, be a civil servant my whole life. So I went to law school. I had a variety of different experiences within law school, worked with a bunch of different government agencies. And by the third year, I decided, you know, I'm not sure I really want to be a lawyer, but I'd invested a lot in it. And I uh, ended up taking the bar exam in New York and practicing for a couple of years. But at the time, I decided that uh, I didn't want to practice law and I wanted to do something else that integrated my interests, certainly in the law, uh, but also with money management. And it also got me in front of uh, interesting, successful people. And so wealth management was what uh, was what I did. I met uh, someone who founded the office for Wilmington Trust in New York, and he liked the idea of lawyers as issue spotters. And I hadn't been practicing law so long that my answer to everything was no or it depends. And so that's how my career got started. Uh, then uh, I basically uh, fulfilled a variety of roles. But in essence, I uh, take care of the clients that I have and I go out and find new ones. And one of the reasons that uh, that works well for me is that it helps me be integrated with uh, people's plans and understanding uh, what they want to do with wealth, but it also allows me to go out and talk a little bit about uh, what we can do for people uh, and what I can do for people on the advice front. So there's a relationship management component to it, but there's also a sales component to it. Um, the extension of that and the reason why I ended up writing a book was that uh, in my industry and in wealth management in particular, it is extremely competitive out there. Uh, and to be able to differentiate yourself, uh, to be able to uh, sort of set yourself out from the uh, 10,000 other people who do what I do in New York City and in the rest of the country, uh, I decided that it was important to have my own statement about how I think. And the book uh, and the branding around the book is uh, a testament to that, hopefully, and something that I think people will enjoy. And when they think they have issues or are looking for advice that hopefully my name comes up awesome i think we'll start on that tangent um it's interesting that a lawyer turned a wealth manager i think there's a person you can trust 
Well, I don't know. I, 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 the, the other way to think of it is I've been in politics, law, and banking, and those are sometimes the three strikes. <laughs> those are those like the three industries that don't really like, but uh, they all cancel each other out. <laughs> awesome. Now let's look at how you build your brand using a book. I'm a strong believer in experts using a book to build the expert status and you did it so well. Can you walk us through how you transitioned from that and all the things you did and begin to write your own thought pers- perspective on uh, wealth management? Share your, your, your story with us on that line. Sure. So you've caught it at an interesting time. The book is released on August 7th. Uh, so I'm in a little bit of a new space on that. But the uh, the other part is that the traditional branding that happens uh, in my space is that uh, I go and make presentations to different law firms and accounting firms, people who advise wealthy folks and uh, talk about what the brand does. And then to the extent that I have a book of business, uh, I talk to the people that I work with and ask them to refer other people to me. Uh, you supplement that by making media appearances and by doing other types of writing. And I've been doing that extensively over the past 16 years. Uh, the part that's interesting for me for the book is that most of the uh, writings and media appearances are topical and uh, render some sort of opinion about something that's happening, whether it's uh, the stock market falling or a tax law change or something like that. Uh, the book was sort of a longer form uh, exercise that I wanted to do to help people understand how I think. And then at a greater level to understand uh, the different issues that I see that uh, happen to people who are uh, going from one type of wealth to another type. And an example of that would be someone who's getting married. So suddenly all of the planning that they did up until that point is going to be a lot different now that they have a family. Uh, another type of wealth is someone who maybe uh, is selling a business. Uh, they were used to a whole bunch of different factors uh, associated with running and growing a business, but now that they're selling it, uh, they have to look at things a little bit differently. And so what I tried to do was uh, take those scenarios, and I use a bunch of different anecdotes uh, gleaned from my 16 years of experience, and get people to try to put themselves in those positions that they uh, that they themselves are in and think about things and think about the issues that they currently have, but that the issues that they're going to have going forward. Wow. That's super amazing. It sounds like a lot of massive work you did or you're still doing. Yes. Yeah, so the, it's an interesting process. The, uh, my publisher made it fairly easy for me. I, I was probably good in the sense that uh, I'd thought about it a lot. I'd written a lot of outlines before because I'd been thinking about doing this for a few years. Uh, but then when I joined my publisher, Lioncrest Publishing, which is uh, the imprint of Scribe, uh, they had a process where it, there are three major parts of the process that helped m- make this happen. The first one was they said, okay, who are you writing this for? Uh, because the answer to that is going to dictate the tone. And I thought about it and we thought about it and we said, okay, I, I, my job is getting out in front of and advising fairly wealthy people, so I want to write it for the 1%. Uh, as a subclass of that, I wanted to write it for people who were around the 1%, the advisors, the lawyers, the accountants, the investment bankers, the appraisers, uh, all the different people who support wealthy folks. Appraiser, let's, uh, let's go slow on this. I like, you know, 
you did something. You picked a, a specific niche. You look at the 1% and the 1% of 1%. Look at the lawyers, the politicians. You pick a specific niche to write for them or to meet their needs. That's one one strong pillar in building a brand. You find a specific niche and meeting their needs. Now, tell us more about that. Sure. I, it really, the thought process behind that was, okay, I'm writing a book. I'd like to be able to have it, so if it turns out to be popular, I'd like the market to be large enough that it would, I'd sell a lot of books and maybe get some financial benefit for that. And so I kind of said to myself, I work with the 1%, 1% of, let's say the United States population is 350 million. That's, you know, that's 3.5 million people. That could be a lot of books. Maybe some people who want to become wealthy, maybe they'll read it. That's, that's a big market and that might be a nice thing. The second part of it, uh, is within that and within maybe other sections are the people who help those three and a half million out. And so if a lawyer or an accountant were to read the book and they thought it was worthwhile and helpful and their clients and helping them think about things, maybe they buy it for four or five of their clients. So I tried to have a plan A, meaning a main market, so the book speaks to them, but then a plan B, which is an ancillary or a secondary market where the people who are around the bigger market might be able to refer the book to them on a very easy basis. That was that was the thought process as I tried to define and sort of reiterate the brand. Oh, that's great. So... Now, let's delve a little bit more into the subject of your book, too. Um, can you walk us through some few chapters in the area of uh, wealth uh, creation, managing your wealth? Sure. So, I, as I said before, I think one of the main things is the book is supposed to speak to people who are having a transition in wealth. I I would probably say that uh, for people who are trying to create wealth, um, this isn't necessarily the book for them as it relates to get, get rich quick ideas or uh, uh, how to build a business or, you know, how to become an investment banker or be an NBA center or something like that. Uh, what I try to do is to help people who are going from one stage of wealth and transitioning to another one. And as to go back to a couple of examples, uh, so the NBA center, for instance, so someone who comes from maybe, uh, you know, not a privileged background who, you know, is, uh, seven foot two and plays for Duke and all of a sudden it looks good and, He's going to be drafted uh, by the Chicago Bulls or the Knicks or somebody like that. Uh, they're going to go from one level level of wealth to another one. And so what the book tries to do is say, OK, let's go through a process here of uh, how we should think about things so that uh, when you get this new set of paychecks, uh, how do we think about it so that you live within your means and also are able to structure your wealth so that you're able to live well beyond your retirement when the checks stop. Uh, and I go through a little bit of an analysis as to, you know, deciding whether or not uh, you are rich uh, and wealthy and do you have a certain set of assets? What are those assets comprised of? Then I try to get people to think about, OK, what are some of the issues that are going to be coming at you? Uh, the hurricane of wealth. Uh, and then really the third part of that analysis or the third set of uh, steps to go through is to understand how much you cost, because even even the wealthiest, uh, no matter how much money you have, uh, you could definitely spend it all. And uh, and I try to get people to understand what they currently cost. And then with their new set of circumstances, what are the things that they're going to be laying out going forward? Uh, one of the big things that I try to do in the book is also educate people 
about the idea of what you do with your uh, assets and your investments and what they can do for you to help you maintain your wealth. Uh, and, you know, many times people say, well, you know, if I've got a million dollars, I can turn it into two million dollars very quickly. Uh, and I try to disabuse people of that, try to get them to understand uh, what stocks and bonds do for you and diversification and how to limit damage that you could do to yourself by borrowing too much or running up credit card bills or overspending uh, and getting into concepts like the power of compounding and why that's so important. Uh, and then really the one of the next important things that I talk about uh, and the thing that I have to beat into my own clients as best I can and remind them and keep them involved is the major threats to wealth. Uh, everything from uh, bad investments, taxes, divorce, uh, excessive lifestyle, uh, people suing, uh, people stealing from them or kidnapping, uh, cybersecurity, those types of issues, and then even random bad luck. So if you bought a house in Malibu and it goes up in flames uh, due to wildfires, those are things you have to worry about and that you have to build uh, you have to build disaster recovery plans for yourself, as I think of them, financial disaster recovery plans in case everything goes haywire. Uh, for the NBA center, for instance, uh, you know, if they tear their knee up after the second season, uh, that they're a different thing than they were before and their earning capability is a lot different. Uh, and so hopefully I try to get people to look into the future and protect themselves against, uh, against, you know, getting, uh, getting into trouble financially. The last major part of it is, you know, you can do all this analysis and do all the thought. And if you don't get the plan off the runway, uh, you're not going to be very successful. And so what I try to do is tell people, uh, give them my experience anyway on how to build teams around you, uh, get the right advice around you, uh, get the right analysis around you and the right facts around you so that you're making good decisions and that you're setting up structures that position you well going forward and give you the best chance of success as it relates to living the life you want to live and fulfilling the goals you want to fulfill, uh, whether that's uh, living large and buying Lamborghinis or whether you want to set up a foundation uh, or whether you want to give your assets to your neck, to your kids and your kids' kids and things like that. Uh, I try to go through that in the book and get people to sort of go through a, a, a longer thought process as it relates to analysis so that they come out asking the right questions. Now, with, uh, you've, you've, be, you've, you've been a politician before, you've worked with politicians, lawyers, and let's look at that. We, we, we've had a couple of uh, famed politicians, and after the turn of office, we tend not to hear from, about them, and their world begins to uh, diminish and dwindle, and they fade away in the system. What, what would be your advice to such people, or maybe a politician listening to, now, to us now, in the area of uh, wealth creation, actualizing their wealth, what do you need, need to do, their cautions, um, and how to preserve their wealth? Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I come at that question starting first from with my legal hat on. And uh, I say to myself, OK, first things first, the, the best way to preserve your situation going forward is to do things legally and above board. I think when you try to have shortcuts and hide assets or move things around in ways that are an affront to the uh, tax law and criminal law and things like that. I think this is a bad first step. And uh, that, that choice you make, in, at least in the United States, uh, usually gets found out in pretty uh, in pretty short order. And the the economy you think you're generating by doing something like that is is false. And it's ultimately a bad step. And I, I really would never 
I would never advise anybody to go that route. And in fact, I would strenuously advise people to go against that route. So that's just sort of a, <laughs> that's my legal disclaimer. Uh, but, but the, the first thing I would do, if, you, if you've got what I would describe as, uh, short window, um, types of careers, uh, where you've got access and, um, uh, really access to, you know, different people in different industries. Uh, I would, the first thing I would do is I would have a, uh, I would think into the future of what a post politician life looks like and, uh, what skills you bring. I would also have a very deep accounting of the different skills that you have. Many politicians are lawyers. Some people are businessmen. Some people, uh, our community organizers, uh, Barack Obama for one. It's really how he started out. He was able to, uh, uh, bring people together and, uh, deliver different messages and, uh, compel people to, to do certain things and to think certain ways. There's real power and value in that. Uh, so I'd have a real honest appraisal of what your skills are. And then I would take that and I would say, okay, what can I do with those skills that make money? Uh, and, uh, you know, from a community organizer standpoint, there are plenty of places, uh, uh, businesses that view that as uh, under the framework of, I would put in quotes, marketing. If you could go out and uh, evangelize a brand and get people to get excited about it and ultimately buy things, that's very valuable to a business. And so that's something I would think about. If I'm a lawyer and I'm in the political system, I would find some things that I'm interested in where uh, you can help people navigate the system later on once you're no longer a politician. Uh, because, you know, the, whether you have to get government contracts or whether you have to navigate regulations in order to build a business uh, or otherwise get your product situated in a market, uh, being able to have that lobbying component is particularly interesting. By the same token, if you're a business person, and you have some sort of unique insight into how the laws work, you may be able to see opportunities there that you can uh, use to help uh, either your business or somebody else's business uh, and be able to uh, take advantage of, of sort of an asymmetry you see between where the market is and where the law is and to be able to help out on that front. I guess I would also say if you're a politician that uh, I would get very interested in technology and where technology with voters and and other interested constituencies, because I think there's a real gap there. And uh, just on a worldwide basis, I think it's just now growing. I think Barack Obama started it uh, with his ability to do things. And now you're seeing all sorts of chaos in the United States as it relates to Trump and who's doing what with Facebook and so on. Uh, paying attention to that and having an understanding of how the legal system and the political system work, uh, I think those are subject matters that could be very fruitful for a business going forward. So the, the key thing is that you really need to do skills assessment, find out what what skill the person might have or need to bring on board and the expertise, then look at how to monetize that after, then, we, then before we look at that aspect of, of creating wealth. Uh, no question about it. At, at a real simplistic level, if I were, you know, here I am about to launch a book, but I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to my future earning power is going to be me uh, being the uh, point guard for the New York Knicks. That's a very poor skills assessment, because as a 5'11", goofy, 44 year old guy, uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, whereas if I look at it and say, you know, I've got political skills, I've got writing skills, legal skills and banking skills. Uh, if I turn this book into something and, and use it to otherwise advise clients, that's really the crux of my business model. And I think I have a much better chance of success uh, than if I uh, 
uh, you know, put my ticket in for the NBA draft and hoped I could find a spot on a team. <laughs> yeah. So the, the one of the uh, frequent questions is, uh, is, is every skill or every, every, every talent uh, monetizable? Can you monetize um, almost every talent or skill? Uh, I would say everything is monetizable at least a little bit, but the question is, is it monetizable enough for your needs to be met? Uh, I, I really enjoy playing golf and that's monetizable, but I'm not sure, certainly at the professional level, I'd have trouble doing that, uh, and making money. I'd have a lot of trouble, uh, if I were to turn that into a different thing and maybe run a golf course or, uh, try to be a marketer for a golf product or, uh, try to run some sort of golf app, that might be a more applicable uh, uh, use of that skill. Uh, but I, I, I would say everything has the potential to be monetizable, but it may not be in the way that you think. Uh, and so, you know, if I enjoy basketball, let's say, and I'm good at free throws and have a good crossover dribble and things like that, but definitely not good enough to play in the NBA. Uh, However, perhaps I am able to better relate to uh, uh, different basketball players who are good enough to do that, and maybe I can be their agent or their legal advisor or something like that because I have uh, a unique insight uh, into their uh, world, and then I can combine it with something else that I do. Uh, you know, so I I would say that sometimes it, it, one particular skill, in order to it for it to be monetizable, I think you've really got to be one of the best in the world at it. But if you're really good at two different skills uh, or three different skills, and you're able to combine them, that to me is something that really works. And then you then you are driving value because you're helping people uh, who need support in different areas uh, to be able to fulfill what they want to do. So okay. And- now that said, let's look at um, what holds for the future of the financial sector. You know, in terms of banks, wealth creation, asset management, and all that. As as Ed, what will cause such a sector or system to thrive in terms of people seeking for legal advice or financial advice? And what will distinguish one firm from the other? And what should we look out for when we're seeking for advice or or clients or companies to manage our wealth? Well, so uh, this is really inside baseball here, I would say that the uh, the first thing I would do is I would uh, set out a list of uh, firms that you uh, that you have heard of, and I would do some research uh, uh, and ask people like lawyers and accountants and so on who have had good experiences with those firms and people at those firms, uh, and I would go through an interview process. Not unlike if you were hiring somebody for a company, uh, except in very rare circumstances, would you just go to one person and say, "Oh, this this is the right guy." Yeah. You want to take it. You want to take a couple of different uh, interviews and see how they do things. Uh, many times, there's no one way to do it, uh, and comfort and fit are as important as the actual expertise. Uh, I, I'm sort of assuming that everybody kind of has the same. Uh, the same set of tools and expertise that can apply to your situation when you're using a wealth manager or a bank or anything like that. So you want to work with people that you like working with and that you trust. And I would go through and I would spend a lot of time uh, getting to know them. And I would make sure that they spend time getting to know you. 
uh, that you're getting very open-ended questions asked. Uh, what do you like to do? What are you trying to achieve? The more they hear from you on that front, that's that that gives them the information to give you better advice. And so if you're not getting the sense that they're very interested in you and that they're more product sales oriented, that that would give me pause. Uh, and I would, uh, as it relates to uh, choosing any sort of person that you're going to be putting your your money with, I would uh, I would be very clear up front what you expect. Uh, I would make sure that they understand uh, what they are, what they are expected to give you, and that you understand, you know, how you how they get paid. Uh, I think that's very fair. Uh, I would want my advisors to have my best interest at heart. That's called being a fiduciary. Uh, to me, if they're anything less than that, that's not necessarily the best bet. Uh, I would want to make sure that you know, they have my best interest at heart and that their pay is aligned with that. Um, and then I would just interview a lot of them and get referrals from people that you trust who have had similar situations and then see what works. And then the, the close cousin to that is what, how do you, what happens if it's not working? Uh, I, the same type of thing. I think you run, you have a set of criteria and performance that you expect. Uh, are they meeting with you monthly, quarterly, annually, whatever you want? Uh, are they doing that? Are your financial goals being met? Are, uh, are they performing adequately? Uh, are they fulfilling what they promised to fulfill? Uh, if they're not, then I think you go back and you try again. Uh, and I think it's worth uh, bringing in other people to analyze what's been done to see if they can improve on it. Awesome. So, Fraser, we can talk about wealth management, asset management, and wealth without talking about blockchain, cryptocurrency. What is your take on that? So uh, very new topics. Um, cryptocurrency, I think, is uh, an exciting and interesting thing. I actually did a podcast with uh, two people who are involved in that, one uh, who has a dollar-based cryptocurrency and another one who invests in a lot of different blockchain types of technologies. Uh, and I, I think cryptocurrency is very interesting and uh, definitely part of the wave of the future. Uh, I think the ability to uh, transfer payments from one place to another with fewer steps and fewer points of uh, uh, fewer friction points, I'd say uh, it's going to make the uh, banking industry and the payment transfer industry very smooth. Um, I think that uh, and I think that's going to be where the world shifts to. Uh, cryptocurrency is I would not be putting gigantic sums of money toward it. Um, from a pure investment as a currency yet, I, I'm still grappling my, grappling with the idea that uh, a currency, uh, the, the confidence that supports a currency is based on the algorithm that supports it. And I like the idea. I think there's some real possible value there. I don't quite understand it that well. Uh, I think cryptocurrencies that have uh, the confidence of a country or a currency, so say a dollar-based currency or a euro-based currency, I think that will take off very quickly. Uh, to me, the real, the, I think you will know that cryptocurrencies have arrived when you are able to buy real estate with it. When people are confident enough in a cryptocurrency to be willing to sell a piece of property in exchange for it, uh, that to me is when it will have arrived. Uh, I, I have on my Google searches crypto or real estate uh, for Bitcoin, so, uh, so that 
Uh, I know that there have been examples of chalets in Switzerland where people will sell it for Bitcoin. I know there's a couple of apartments in New York, same thing, California and some Miami and some other examples. So we're starting to see where people are having some uh, some confidence in things like Bitcoin and Ethereum and others. But the, the volatility right now, I, I look at that and say, you know, let, let's let's let this um, let's let this simmer down. Uh, part two of what you talked about with blockchain, I think blockchain is going to be seismic in almost every industry. Uh, if, if I look at it and see how, uh, basically the transfer of information from one place to another or the transfer of one value, uh, value from one place to another, and that's immediately codified and permanent, uh, in the basis of a system, it has, it has applications everywhere. Uh, and if I sort of take, sort of take a tour around my brain to figure that out, first one comes to mind, title insurance. Uh, if you have, if you transfer a piece of property from one person to another and that's in a permanent file somewhere, title insurance is going to be completely changed. Uh, stock transfer. If you're buying and selling stock and one thing goes to another and, uh, and there's a permanent record of that, uh, you, you make things so much more efficient in the banking industry. I just think that has to be a huge, uh, a huge pivot. Um, it, there are dozens of others. And so uh, blockchain, it's a, it's a big word with a lot of different applications. Some are going to work. Some are not going to work. Uh, but I, I really think it is an important piece of what's going on going forward. Amazing. So, uh, Fraser, as you round up, what would be your billion dollar advice in wealth management, especially from your book, Wealth Actually? When? Well, so the billion dollar question. So it's the question, what's my billion dollar idea or what idea affects a billion dollars worth of things? <laughs> um, uh, I'll give you two. Okay. So on the, on the billion dollar idea, uh, I, I will just go with the most recent one. I think, uh, I think title insurance, uh, being, um, uh, driven by blockchain principles, uh, I think that has worldwide application. Uh, and, and I think it can make real estate transactions uh, vastly simpler, vastly easier. And I think that could be that, that could create a billion dollars of value if uh, the infrastructure is put in place uh, clearly. Uh, the second idea, something that impacts a billion dollars, in fact, it, it impacts a trillion dollars, uh, I think, is the power of compounding. Uh, my idea is really the, the faster we can teach people the power of compounding, the fewer financial mistakes that they'll make. Uh, what does that mean? That means that if you, uh, if you have time, uh, the, when, uh, dollars, uh, increase by an interest rate, uh, it increases geometrically. By the same token, if you're borrowing money and have to pay interest, uh, and you have time, uh, the value and, or the liability will, inc- will decrease geometrically. Uh, and many people who buy properties and borrow money and borrow money to buy pizzas and things like that don't understand that they're digging themselves a huge financial hole uh, if they go that route. And by the same token, people who start saving earlier really do a better job of having a nice financial future later on in their lives. And so, a billion dollar or a trillion dollar idea for me would be to start teaching the power of compounding as early as possible. So that as people progress through uh, grade school and high school and college, they're making good financial decisions. Uh, you know, one example of that would be if you're going to college and, you know, in the United States anyway, if you're spending $70,000 a year in tuition, 
uh, and you're borrowing to do that, make sure that you're guiding your curriculum uh, in a way that you're getting a good job out of it and so that you can chip away at that debt later. Um, I, I, the idea of borrowing to develop something that's going to make money in the future, I'm a big believer of. Uh, borrowing money to fund consumption or frivolous things I think that's how you get into trouble. And so the earlier people have that embedded in their thought process, I think that's a really good, uh, I think that's a really good topic. And at least in the States, I would like to see that concept taught as, as early as possible so that people get used to think about it in those terms. Power of compounding. Forget anything. That's right. Don't forget that. <laughs> All right. Fraser Wright, um, how can listeners reach you and also get your book wealth actually great uh so you can reach me at fraserrice.com f-r-a-z-e-r-r-i-c-e.com you can email email me at fraserrice at wealthactually.com and on august 7th the book will come out on amazon so you can download it on kindle and it will be out on paperback awesome Right, so if you enjoyed this episode, uh, just head on to iTunes and give us a positive review and also get Fraser Rice book on Amazon. Just go to Amazon.com, search for Fraser Rice and also go to my website www.bkc.name and listen for brand building to get my book on personal branding or corporate branding on Amazon.com. The best is yours. <laughs>